I am in the process of getting additional equipment set up so that we can play the music like this and it'll we can dance we can dance if we want to hello and welcome to let's pod this so glad you're here my name is andy moore i'm joined by my two esteemed co-hosts dr scott nelson hello sir and the illustrious bailey perkins hello Hello, Andy. Hey, Scott. Great to see you both. Happy Friday. Bailey, it has been a full year that you have been with us on the podcast. It has. And I'm so grateful for this journey with you all and to be able to share insights about the political process to help make our civic engagement easier so that more people can be involved in their government. Um, and we've interviewed some really esteemed guests to have their hot takes on different issues that have come about. Um, and we've even gone through highs and lows together as a unit. So I even feel closer to both you, Andy and Scott, through this journey. So I'm, I'm grateful to be on the pod with y'all. Well, and it's so crazy that, I mean, a year ago this week we had you know certainly there was news about a virus circulating in dark corners of uh, of southeast asia but it hadn't made it here i think it was in the us by now but it wasn't in oklahoma yet um, and uh, honestly a year ago in just a couple of days my daughter was born um, and so it's crazy that she has reached a year now or she will this weekend and uh who none of us knew what this last year would hold back then. I mean, it's crazy because I remember us sitting and talking in this in studio, one of the last episodes that we did in person. And we were talking about the diamond princess and you know, the, the outbreak that had happened on the ship. And I remember before I had learned very much about COVID at all, I being pretty firmly in the camp of like, y'all, I really, I don't think this is going to be a big deal. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I remember it's like, it's going to, you know, the mortality rate is so low, which is, which by and large is true. The mortality rate is significantly higher than, than flu, but we just, I don't think in the U S anyway, had any, any idea of how many people get so severely ill with this disease and what it does to them. And it was, I mean, it was not even two weeks later that we started hearing reports of what was coming out of Northern Italy um, in Milan specifically, and in the clothing, the, the, the area, the textile areas of, uh, of Italy. And then shortly after that, it was New York and Seattle, Seattle, and then New York. And then we were all just like, and then there was a thunder game and it was like, holy shit. Um, you know, it has been, it's been a whirlwind. I think, um, man, Bailey, it's been amazing having you here. I wish that we hadn't had to spend the bulk of our time over, over zoom. I remember the first, the first episode that you recorded with us, we all, uh, we all, uh, had some whiskey and it was delightful. And, um, you know, it's just, we can, we can do it this way, but the pot is just better when we get to all be together. So I look forward to that day again. I agree. I was actually at the studio today starting to clear it out because um, our our friends that let us use that space are, are moving out here in a few months. And I was like, oh, we got a whole bunch of stuff. And we just got new microphones just a few episodes before we had to stop using it. So I have one here. It's not plugged in yet, uh, but I just like it being close to me. And hopefully by next week, I'll have it plugged in and I can use it. And then we can explore other options um, for how to make the pod feel a little bit more like in person, knowing that it will never feel that way until we truly are. Anywho, let's go on with the business of the week and the big news. I guess the big news of this week, it feels like it was forever ago, but on Monday, Governor Stitt delivered his uh, third state of the state address. And the legislature convened. And they convened. And we are off to the races. It's already been quite a week uh, for them. So let's talk about the state of the state address uh, what it is, what it was not, and then we can maybe wrap up with just general commentary on some of the other headlines we've seen this week. Yeah, I was so I had a, I had a really busy week in clinic this week and didn't get to actually watch the state of the state. Um, so I'm just uh, I just kind of was reading through the transcript and Oklahoma Watch. They do this every year, so uh, listeners uh, check it out if you haven't before. They go through and do a really nice job annotating 
the state of the state uh, with uh, they fact check stuff. They offer commentary. They link to stories that they've done on the various issues that come up. Um, but I'll tell you guys, I mean, you know, if I just came out of the, came out of, came out of my, 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 my hole, pulled my head out of the sand and read the state of the state. I mean, it sounds like things are pretty great, right? Like it's, uh, you know, we're in, apparently we're in, apparently we're in great shape. We're, we're leading the nation in virtually every area. Uh, you know, we're doing better than anybody else economically. Like we've handled the pandemic better than anybody else. Um, you know, we'd, uh, you know, schools should have been open again like six months ago. It's ridiculous that anybody's still doing virtual school. So the the state of Oklahoma seems like we're 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 cooking with gas, and we just need to throw some logs on the fire. At least that's what I took from the state of the state, and also in that the governor has done an amazing job in the last twelve months. That's was that's that seemed to me to be what the the gist was. But maybe I'm I'm wrong. One of the big things I do want to lift that will be a good thing at least for a functioning government is it seems like there's going to be more cohesion with the leadership of the house the senate and the governor uh he mentioned in the state of the state that they had already been um, meeting to work on different priorities and last year around this time we were talking about the tension between the House, the Senate, and the uh, the executive branch, and actually not even the House, the House and Senate. It was the legislature because they were on one accord versus the the governor. And so we've talked about on several um, podcast episodes how there was tension with the governor and all these different entities. And it seemed like from that state of the state that they're making. Uh, a concerted effort to get on a better foot going into this session. Yeah, I I think that remains to be seen for a couple of reasons. One, you know, we've discussed already that managed care is going to be a hot button issue. Um, the governor has championed it pretty publicly, and he did during his speech. And the legislature that, gave no claps at yeah, all. Yeah, that when was an awkward up. silence. Yes, yeah. it was. The whole speech um, had claps, except that part. Yeah, not even any courtesy claps. Like it was just. This was when he brought up managed care. Uh huh. Mm. Yeah, and, and I mean, it was a quick breeze through. He didn't give a lot of detail in the way that he was celebrating and championing the other parts because I think he anticipated the tension in the room when he brought up managed care, especially from how it was handled with the legislature feeling that the executive branch had an overreach of power and being able to just kind of unilaterally uh, make this move. And, you know, as contrast to his first year in office where the legislature gave him more authority, right? They, you know, he had requested in his state of the state, the ability to appoint agency heads and they happily obliged. And I remember us talking on the show about how they were going to do this, but it would they may, you know, if you ride the tiger, like sometimes you know what happens. And so you fall off, right? And uh, sprain your ankle. No, you get eaten by the tiger and it comes back to bite you. And and so once they did that, then year two, they really pulled back on that. Um, and it he has not been met, you know, friendly by the governor, I think. And so now we're dealing with this situation where um, the, the governor is still seeking more authority and more power and just autonomy in some ways. And there are a number of bills that have been filed that basically like redirect all authority through the legislature, like that the executive can't do these things. We got to pull it back. And you know, something that's interesting um, is that, that there's a nod to that actually, even at the very beginning, do y'all know without looking, without looking at the text um, after the governor introduced himself and said, you know, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Pro Tem, yada, yada, yada. It's a great honor to stand before you and to partner with you to lead our state through unprecedented times. Do you know what the very first thing he said was? The very first line of his speech. Hmm? Says, I respect the constitutional authority of both of these legislative bodies. That is a weird way to start your speech, right? Meaning, <laughs> meaning him and the legislature, right? To say nothing about the third branch that was also present. Well, I think he was actually, I think he was saying, I respect, 
uh, the House and Senate. He was saying, I respect the constitutional authority of both the House and the Senate, which like saying that at your as, as the very first thing that you that you mentioned at the gate is kind of addressing that, like a lot of people think that he, in fact, does not. Right. <laughs> like that's what to, to open up. So I, I felt like that was a really interesting, interesting way um, to start. So he says, you know, I want to respect the I, I do respect the constitutional authority. And he goes on to say that he wants to have the, the, I pledge to work with you and have the best and most productive session, uh, in state history. And then his third line was the first reference to a top 10 state. Um, but I'm ching, right. Um, but rim shot gif, right. Um, uh, and then he kind of moved into his first section, um, where to my mind, he mostly talked about how awesome he did at managing the pandemic, which is a pretty typical. And I, I think in many ways, like his speech was somewhat formulaic for a state of the state addresses, right? Much like the state of the union, it's supposed to be kind of a raw, raw speech of like, we're strong, we're good. We're going to do even better. Um, and then how they define it's goodness and what's going to make it better is usually the part that people pay attention to. Well, and I participated in a conversation with the Oklahoma Institute for Child Advocacy, where they were talking about in their legislative lab, legislative learning lab, uh, analyzing, you know, what did we glean from the state of the state? And uh, Daniel Billingsley um, with the Oklahoma Center for Nonprofits raised an incredible point that although he was, you know, defending, you know, the decisions that were being made over time with the timing of reopening uh, the economy and, you know, his push on getting kids back in school and the distribution of vaccines and all these things related to the pandemic. There was also this underlying boogeyman throughout. And so Dan made the argument that there was always something that was to, to blame. It was the, the radical left in Washington, D.C., or what was blaming Tulsa superintendent for not getting kids back in in-person education it was blaming the state for not doing anything different around Medicaid to make costs go down. It was, you know, blame um, or pit um, a criminal um, who's a member of a tribal nation on the McGirt case, right? So there was always an underlining place to fit blame instead of even tying together, right, how he's championing these things. It's, it's we did this and this is not happening because they didn't do that. Here's what we're going to do. And especially on the context of, I felt some disjointedness on this idea at the very end about unity, but you overtly say the voters brought together a record number of Republican members. So we're going to carry out a conservative agenda, which overtly says we don't care about working across the aisle. Like we have control. We're going to do the things that we want to do. And so that was an interesting partisan spin that we rarely get out of the state of the states so overtly from past governors. Yeah. And I, what was also just funny to me about that, he was like, you know, Oklahomans elected more, you know, the expanded the Republicans majority in the legislature, which is true. But that doesn't tell the whole story, right? Like part of the story is that many of them did not have a Democratic opponent at all. It doesn't talk about districts that were gerrymandered 10 years ago to ensure that they can maintain the majority. Um, it does, you know, there was, it doesn't, just because they got elected doesn't, accurately reflect the fact that um, it is the the proportion of Republicans to Democrats in the legislature is vastly different than the proportion of Republicans to Democrats as far as registered voters go, right? So, um, and also, yeah, it just was like, why would you say that? 
And also, it it doesn't account for the fact that that record number of Republicans got elected in a year where there was record turnout on both sides of the aisle in an extremely polarized national electorate. And Oklahoma is one of the few remaining states that allows people to vote straight party, right? So I'm curious, you know, I have no idea what's going to happen in 2022. I've given up trying to make predictions about things. But like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, we we saw in the in the Georgia the Georgia runoffs at the national senatorial level um, that there was a little bit of a drop off um, in in turnout on uh, in some of the more conservative districts um, in the runoff election compared to the presidential election. And I don't know if that'll happen in Oklahoma, but it does make me wonder is if you have people that came out to vote in 2020 and they were coming out because they wanted to vote for Donald Trump for president, but they checked straight ticket Republican. Um, that doesn't mean that there's going to be any seats that flip in 2022. Um, but, you know, I think you you can certainly posit that the reason there are more Republicans in the legislature than ever before is because Oklahomans are just super happy with the way the Republicans are running the state. And if they are, that's fine. But um, I don't think that you can say that that's like the only plausible explanation. It's, it's probably part of it, but I don't know that it tells the the entire story. It is just interesting to me, and you're right, Andy. I think that this is a very formulaic uh, state of the state. Like, there's there's nothing in it that was just super surprising. But it is just it's just a little bit as you know, as a as a as a doctor who's taking care of COVID patients, who's taking care of COVID patients in the outpatient setting and in the inpatient setting, who's I've you know I've I've seen the pandemic like up close. And to just read through this section about like the amazing job that we did in Oklahoma and how other states all across the country are figuring out that we did it the right way and that we took the smart approach. And then you put that in contrast, right? Nothing about masking. And, and then you, and then you contrast that with like experiencing the pandemic, the pandemic all day, every day, like in your face. And then you further contrast it with what we know that like, we were ignoring White House guidelines, even from the Trump administration, the like reticence to provide those White House reports that were being made available to uh, the, the state leadership, you know, to not provide those to the to the to the to the public. Um, it just was a little like. Are you saying this because that's what you say in this speech? Are you saying it because this is really what you believe? Like, I just. It just, it, I, it's, it wasn't, it was not surprising, but, but even, but that notwithstanding, it was still just like a little bit surreal to read, like if that makes any sense. And I felt that there were a whole lot of missed opportunities throughout. So I'll just highlight a few that I've been thinking about, you know, since I heard the, the state of the state. I felt like one, there was a missed opportunity to connect with the people of the state. There was an overt effort to make this about businesses in Oklahoma, making it business friendly in the top 10. Um, there was nothing that spoke to the needs that people have and the families that may be facing eviction, um, the Oklahomans who um, are battling hunger and have never needed our services before, right? And so there was no connection to relate to the challenges people may be feeling, or even if they're a caregiver and they have a loved one with COVID and now that's affecting their work. But it was this very, you know, Pollyanna kind of, things are gonna be great. We're gonna be a business state. We're gonna attract more businesses as a, businesses are the only people who reside in the state of Oklahoma. And I think that was concerning. I think the other piece I was missing was the pulse on our social climate. He missed a real opportunity to speak to uh, the racial tension that happened, um, the insurrection that happened in D.C., uh, the, the heightened frustration that Americans are feeling in this country. I mean, whether it's talking about, you know, police brutality and violence um, and the constant disappointments that um, Black Lives Matter advocates are feeling and others to Trump supporters feeling like they've been left behind or that their backs have been turned on because now they're having to face you know, accountability for their actions to, you know, the people who are just kind of trying to, to figure out this time of, 
of tension and division. And there was just nothing about that as if we're living in this la-la land and, and everything is great. I mean, he even tried to mention a Black business or two that received funding through a state program, but it was still very tone deaf. And there were some areas that were frankly overtly racist when you were talking, when he was talking about the, um, like McGirt case. I don't think that did anything to further his relationships with tribal nations. And so that was definitely a missed opportunity. And then I'd say to Scott's point, he missed an opportunity uh, to have sensitivity for those who lost lives and are battling the coronavirus pandemic, right? Um, the big focus was, look what we did, look look how we approached this and not saying, you know, here's what we need to do forward to slow the spread. Here's what we need to do aggressively. And it, it was focused on how we get back so that businesses can thrive and not how do we get back so fewer people have to suffer from this virus, right? So kind of tying back to, to that human element that I just, felt like I like it wasn't a speech from a governor who is trying to represent four million people. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, Bailey. Um and I mean as listeners know, the loss of COVID hits me, you know, in a very personal way from my mom dying um, a couple of months ago from it. And and I think you're right. Like there was an element that of like empathy or humanity that was missing that I feel like this year in particular would have been nice, right? Like I get doing a rah-rah, go business, you know, that kind of speech. But I, I feel like he said a couple of sentences that were like, these are the two phrases I will allocate towards humanity, right? Like we've lost people. So sad. Um, but we're open for business. And even in the section where he talked about. And other the, states are behind us, but look what we did. Yeah. Now so, you yeah. Know, California and New York are having to. And it's like that. That right. doesn't resonate yeah. with Oklahomans. No. Well, it's probably some. Right. But like, you know, a leader virgin um, had a in their response. Like she said that the governor, the way he his his speech was nothing more than revisionist history was what her quote said. And I. I, I get her saying that, of course, certainly from coming from the minority party. What I, how I have viewed it, I think increasingly as I've reflected on it over this week as we prepared to record today, is that his speech told one side of the story, which is true, right? Like we did open up sooner than other states. It We did have a, a better economic response, perhaps because of that. Like we, it's still a little early to be known. For one thing, because it wasn't as bad here as quickly here as it was in like New York or California. And so their economies took a bigger hit. And, you know, our rates are still high, but it took a longer for our wave to get hit. Um, and there's a lot of other factors that go into that. And as we saw in like 2008, 2009, that economic crisis didn't hit Oklahoma as hard for a couple of years until it like trickled down into our economy. Uh, and so we'll, I'm curious to see how it'll go you know, tax returns, um, gross, gross revenues have continued to decline. Um, and so I suspect the worst may be yet to come, but the, his, his side of the story, I guess I'll say it, his side of the story left out, right? I don't, it didn't necessarily revise anything, but it certainly left out this other side that yes, there have been 3000 Oklahomans that have died from COVID, but there have been more than 500,000 that have had it right that we that have been diagnosed and the Who current the estimates three are people on this podcast right right and the the in addition to that right the best estimates are that we're only diagnosing 30 to 50 percent of all the cases that are out there and so there's actually been right like perhaps as many as a million or uh you know a one and a half million cases of people who have had it and i have a friend today that's a nurse that was having to, you know, she saw a picture on Twitter of school children, I think it's some school and more, and they would make cards for a nursing home, which is a very sweet thing. But all the photos, the kids didn't have masks on, including the kids in the background. 
And that was like kind of a gut punch to know that like you're not wearing masks, but you're sending cards to people who can't leave and are more susceptible. And then my friend that's the nurse said, I am I just referred a child to a cardiologist because they have heart damage from having COVID. Like, yes, they lived, but they have this ongoing health issue that very well may be with them for the rest of their life. And I think about that a lot of like what the next 10, 20 years are going to look like as children age, as athletes age, as well, we all age. That's the way time works. But that lots of ancillary health issues will just begin to manifest and we'll see the impacts of COVID long after uh, we all get vaccinated and get past the disease. And that is heartbreaking, right? And not, I mean, it's not a direct comparison, but like when we drop the nuclear bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? Like we killed, and Hiroshima, I think we killed a million people that night. And then, but the like radiation poisoning that affected millions more that then had higher rates of cancer and birth defects, and all this stuff that carried on for like three generations, right? And so just because you didn't die in the bomb doesn't mean that your life and the lives of everyone around you wasn't forever changed. Anyway, I, I don't know how you give that speech and it'd also be a rah-rah business speech at the same time, but I would have liked to have seen a little more humanity and empathy from our chief executive. Right. I mean, that's, you know, and, and he goes on to talk about how at the end of the section that like our cases are down by X percent and our hospitalizations are down by X percent as though that's happening because of all the great things that we're doing. And it's like, well, even if you watched uh, one of the press conferences, I think it was from, from Healthy Oklahoma Coalition um, this week, where several of the docs were saying, yeah, cases are falling. And we think it's because when you take the fact that we do have you know, some large percent of the population is wearing masks most of the time, right? It's not like there's nobody masking in Oklahoma, but you take that and then you put that into uh, uh, into context with the fact that we've administered about half a million vaccines, but half a million people have gotten their first dose, which is good. I will, I want to say that the, the vaccination effort in Oklahoma is going really well, both objectively and in comparison to how it's going other places. So that's good news. But a we think a big part of why we're starting to see cases drop is because so many people have had COVID, right? Like if you if you think that the half a million people that we know have had COVID, if that's an undercount by 50% and a million people have had COVID, and then on top of that, you had a half million people have had the first dose, dose of the shot, and then you add in and then you add in um, the people that are masking and distancing. Like now we're probably starting to get towards what's called conditional herd immunity, which means the R is dropping below one and the virus just has fewer places to spread. That is unequivocally good news, but I think an open question or at least something that, you know, I don't know that we're going to have the answer today, but like, did we have to have a million people get COVID and 3000 die for that to happen? Right? Like, so Scott, you're, you mean to tell me that it wasn't because we opened the economy and opened businesses back up in June? It was not because of that, Bailey. I feel, I feel, I feel confident saying that it was not because of that decision. <laughs> well, another piece that I want to lift. I mean, Andy, there was some explicitly revisionist history in the speech. The governor made a statement saying that we need to come together in the way that we did in 1907. And <laughs> Just like to that. me, that emphasizes. Even further, there's a bill in the Senate side that would prevent schools from teaching about anything that would be like divisive or anything. This is the exact reason why that bill is dangerous, right? Because if we're telling kids that everything was great and, you know, Native Americans and white people, loved each other and hugged and they shared land to create this great state. Like you're leaving out so much context that ties into why we have some of the social and economic challenges we have now. Right. I mean, the first law in the books in Oklahoma was segregation. Right. Um, yeah. His speech years, was like, yeah. It was like the the picture of the pilgrims and the Indians, uh, like having dinner, right? That we all grew up with, like that is ex explicitly not what happened, right? It wasn't like one big happy table where they're all carving the turkey and handing corn to each other. Like 
that's that is not remotely what happened. Our state was founded on violence, and we cannot sugarcoat that in any kind of way, uh, because otherwise we're literally lying to think that people were unified and they came together to create the state. No, lands were stolen to create the state. And then even the lands that were given to tribal nations are still like under question of, uh, of the extent of their sovereignty, right? Even today. Well, and, yeah, and that part of the speech really like it made me feel uncomfortable like if i'm being honest it was that like kind of like oh peace where he was talking about the mcgirt ruling because the examples were like you know they let this rapist go and they may not even pay taxes and i was like what year is it man like these are they are oklahomans they are our friends and neighbors you sir are a tribal member like and i just and it's was not like, even about the case but no, I was wondering he was going to use the word savages at some point. Like, it was really bad. Right. It has nothing to do necessarily with that case, but more so about jurisdiction and, and where power resides. And so for him to even use that in the way that he did was irresponsible and frankly racist. I mean, it's February 1st was the first day of Black History Month. And we've reached the 100th anniversary of the massacre that took place in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in North Tulsa, a thriving community of Black folks who owned all kinds of things. The dollar passed several times in the community before it went out. I mean, Black folks in North Tulsa were thriving, and then their community was literally burned down by even like the government participated, right? Because you had like National Guardsmen and police officers that helped burn, literally burn down the community and kill people. And to this day, they've received a, put a plaque here and my bad y'all. Like <laughs> there hasn't been real reparation for that. And at the very, very, very least, just making mention and acknowledging, acknowledging that that moment is a is a, a a terrible part of our history, but it is a part of our history, is is it's irresponsible. So even just like our eyes, my eyes, I can't speak for everybody else, but like my eyes were like, what when I heard, let's come together like we did in 1907. Yeah, it was uh there were several things like that that just kind of stood out and and I think were a gut punch to a lot of Oklahomans, right? Regardless of uh party affiliation, like sometimes just, you know, based on race and ethnicity. <laughs> um and so it was a weird thing. So let's um let's also talk a little bit about uh his comments about education because they garnered quite the um flame war on the internet later. So Basically, he said, all kids should be back in school. He, I, I will start this by saying he did say one phrase that is well taken, particularly by me, that he said, can you imagine being a first grader trying to learn how to read over Zoom? And I can because I have a first grader who has learned to read. Now she has learned to read because of her mother and because of me. Um, and her teacher has helped a little bit, but they've only been in school. My kids go A-B schedule uh, in Edmond, and so they've only been in school for 38 days this year, right? But Andy, and, there were kids learning how to read, listening to the radio a hundred years ago. Well, and when also we had a, pan, a pandemic of this right. nature. That's right. Generations ago. So, right. yeah, and this is way better. And also, you know, it strikes me as odd that like a year ago, the governor was touting the benefits of Epic, right? And like, which was virtual learning. And so now to be like, virtual learning is not good enough. It's like, but you was good enough last year, right? <laughs> like, and now more kids are doing it and now you want to poo-poo on it. So like, huh. And that was, that was the limit to the conversation about education. It wasn't about educators. We know you are on the front lines doing your best, trying to teach our kids, learn new technologies, staying up late on, helping on weekends. Cause I know that, for example, my stepdaughter 
is going to need some extra support. So the teacher said we can work with her on, on Saturdays, right? So you have educators like in, in institutions that are trying their best to continue to serve kids, make sure that they're fed because there's so many kids whose milk comes from school. None of that was in the speech. It was solely about an agenda to try to force schools to go back in person without any kind of conversation about here are the resources that we're going to give you to make sure that you can get back to the classroom safely or teachers, we're going to make sure before you get to the classroom that you have the ability to get the vaccine, right? None of those things were discussed. It was just bullying schools to say, look at these schools that went back, even though one of the schools that he mentioned on the list, Broken Arrow, a day or two after, I mean, a day or two before the state of the state had to uh, immediately go back to um, virtual learning because they had uh, a shortage of teachers because there were so many people who had either been exposed or had COVID, right? <laughs> and so it was just very tone deaf to solely have a conversation about the needs of children and students and schools to just be about they need to be in five days a week. I demand that all schools return to in-person learning as soon as possible. However, I refuse to do anything proactive to try and make that possible. Right. Like, right. He had, like, he, he won't do any of the things that schools and, and health workers have asked for to make it possible. Right. He won't institute a mask mandate. Right. Like, you know, um, we opened up the bars and restaurants, I would argue, too early, right? Instead of sending our kids back to school, we made sure that we had businesses open, right? Rather than doing it the other way around. And there, it is true, that there, it is true, I think, that data has shown that you can open schools, particularly schools for younger children, and not have as much risk for COVID spread as we previously thought. It doesn't mean that they don't get it. They do doesn't mean they don't get sick. They do. It doesn't mean that they can't get sick and have serious complications because they do and they can. But it seems like it doesn't happen at quite as high a rate in younger, particularly like pre-K and elementary age kids as it does in like junior high school kids and, and high schoolers. But it still does happen, right? And it happens, that happened to me, right? Like I caught COVID from a six-year-old and then my sister and my nephew caught COVID from the three-year-old who was playing with the six-year-old, right? right? These things do happen. They do. They, do. <laughs> they absolutely do. And the, the facts are that he, the things the governor has done to try and slow the spread of COVID in the state, he has done like kicking and screaming and being dragged to it, not because he was trying to be proactive. Like that's like, that's, that's what's frustrating. And speaking of, if anybody wants to, uh, <clears throat> you think that I am tough on Governor Stitt, and I am, and that's fine. Uh, somebody need to go read uh, Dr. Deborah Geist's uh, response to the state of the state, Superintendent of Tulsa Public Schools, um, because the governor did spend a whole section of his speech specifically um, calling out Tulsa Public Schools for um, the way that they've handled COVID. And um, Dr. Doctor, is it Geist? I always say Geist. Is it Gist? Gist. Gist. Well, Dr. Gist was not having it. Um, and so if you have not read her response to the state of the state, you should. I don't think I've ever heard a state of the state where a governor overtly attacked a person or an entity in the way that it was evidenced of him coming for Dr. Gist and the decisions made by a local entity. So we always talk about local control and the necessity for you know local governments to make their own decisions. But in the cases of schools making the decisions based on the information that they have and what's best for their communities, it's suddenly not a good idea to have local control. I just don't get it. Well, and he has it's starting to feel personal, right? Like his, his thing of just like Tulsa public schools, Tulsa public schools, Tulsa public schools. And he always highlights, you know, a broken arrow and jinx, they've been open. And it's like ironic because they had to close either right before, or right after a speech because of COVID outbreaks in those schools 
Uh, and so it's like, uh, yeah, that there's a risk with that. BA specifically has the worst COVID outbreak anywhere in the state. Like, yeah. So all in all, it was uh, good speech. A, good speech. Good speech. Good speech. <laughs> Strong mark. So, so we covered McGirt. We covered schools. We covered the businesses, a whole bunch, all that stuff. That was. I well, said, so Andy, don't forget about the people's agenda. Okay. Yeah. So back when he was talking kind of early in the speech about how more than 80% of the legislature is now led by conservative Oklahomans. And he says, you know, we'll protect this, you know, protect oil and gas from radical liberals in Washington, abortion things and business friendly and farmers, all the kind of buzzwords. And then he says, we are going to create not the house agenda, not the Senate agenda, but the people's agenda. And I was like, Oh no, what is this going to be? Because are we are we all gonna are we all gonna move to South America and live in a tent? Is this a communism joke? No, do you remember the people, Jim Jones, the people's the people's uh, suicide cult, the people's temple. Oh, right. They all drank. The yeah, they all drank cyanide, Kool Aid. Yeah, I was Jeez. I was trying to make a make a make a no okay. like a cult joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, when he said people's agenda, I was like, okay, he's going for some kind of populist win here, but given how things have gone the last six months uh, or three months in Oklahoma and the country, it seemed like a risky move. So he says the number one priority or the number one pillar of the people's agenda, make Oklahoma a top 10 state for business. Number two, deliver taxpayers more for their money. And number three, invest in our fellow Oklahomans. And so I was like, I don't even know. I don't know what these things mean, right? Like we still don't know what it means to be a top 10 state for business. How do you measure that? Deliver taxpayers more for their money? And I, that, I think that's code for don't raise taxes, but squeak out more services somehow. He overtly said in the state of the state, we need more taxpayers, not tech taxes. So um, obviously, obviously, Andy, it means we... Uh... It means we eliminate waste and inefficiency. So it is what it always is. And we know we know how much there is of that, right? And give two billion dollars to outside entities to run our Medicaid program. Dun dun dun. Yeah. So he said that what we need is more taxpayers, not taxes, which I think is he's trying to say like we should attract more people here, but that they will pay taxes and thus we get more tax money. Like it's I know what he's trying to say, but it was just a weird, weird way to say it. But then he said, and I texted Scott right then. I am proud to say that Oklahoma is open for business. I think next year we should make a bingo card of this, of like things, components of, I've done it in the past. Um, and I think we should do it again of like things that the governor might say, or, you know, aspects of a, of a typical state of the state speech. Well, and what's interesting is you said the, the people's agenda, it does make it sound like, a populist agenda, but this whole like make, I mean, again, make Oklahoma top 10 state for business, deliver taxpayers more for their money and investor. Like those are super like, like that's, that's, I don't know, a dozen words or so that doesn't say actually anything, but to the extent that you try and extrapolate what that means, that's not a populist agenda, right? Like business friendly, like tax law and regulation. Like that's not a populist agenda, like delivering taxpayers more for their money. So trying to squeeze more government services out without any more funding, that's not a populist agenda and investing in our fellow Oklahomans. I mean, I guess that could be depending on what you want to do, but like, it, it just seems like they, it seems like they, I don't know if they like poll tested some phrases and then took like three poll tested phrases and stuck them together and said the people's agenda. That's, that's what we're doing. But like, it doesn't actually mean anything, right? Like, well, even before that, there was a laundry list of we're going to fight for the sanctity of life. We're going to lower taxes. We're going to do this and that right before there was a discussion about the three pillars of the people's agenda. And so there's other elements to the people's agenda that are ideologically driven rather than driven by, you know, populists or or what the needs are for the moment. And I think that's the reason why we had, um, what was that, Wednesday? Uh, all the abortion bills were, were heard and, and committed. Yeah. So I assume it was Rose Day at the Capitol, because that's usually, and I think listeners probably know that, like that's usually the first or second day of session is all the abortion bills, all the abortion abolitionists 
go to the Capitol. Um, but it's but it's not lost on me. But that was a priority mentioned in the state of the state as a specific bullet point, and so. I think it's also an election season that we're going into. So we're going to hear more of the um, conservative rhetoric as we have a gubernatorial race. Um, we'll have another uh, congressional race. We'll have uh, a U.S. Senate race in 2022. And so um, that's Jeff's definitely just the, the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So to that point, I was going to say, I felt like this was the governor laying out his platform for his reelection bid. Oh, for sure. And his presidential bid after that, like for definitely. Um, yeah, I totally. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. So it's been 45 minutes that we've spent um, shitting on the state of the state, which I think every second of it has been deserved. Um, was there anything we liked in the speech? Well, like I mentioned, I think it was great that there's finally some effort to try to have better communication between the legislature and the executive branch. It's just not a good look for there to be so much tension between the branches and then to see so many vetoes happening because the governor may have one lens, the legislature has another one, but they're not coming together early enough. So even if it is performative or language, at least right now, it's at least being spoken that they have a goal of trying to work more cohesively because if you are the majority party that has a historic number of members in both chambers and you control the legislature, there's far much more that you should be able to, to get done. And so if they're not working cohesively, then that can't happen. And so uh, I thought that was something um, that that could be great for um, the legislature and even um, the governor as they move into a, a new election season. Yeah. And I actually do like, he talks a lot about the businesses that he's um, and other members of, of, of state leadership are reaching out to and encouraging them if they want to move to Oklahoma. I actually, I'm all for that provided that we're not creating you know, specific tax breaks and tax loopholes and incentives for all these businesses to come here if they want to come here because the general climate, I think that's great. I don't think we need a law for every single company that their specific tax break they get to entice them to come to Oklahoma. Um, but yeah, man, the more like the more we can do to diversify Oklahoma's uh, economy, I think that's I think that's great. You know, he talked about using the quick action closing fund as a way to help, you know, provide pr provide cash to some of these companies as incentives um, to, to come here or use that cash to create incentives for them to, to come here. Um, people have been cr critical of that in the past. I've been critical of that in the past. You know, I, as long as it doesn't become like a giant slush fund he can use for whatever he wants, you know, I think one thing that will be interesting is, you know, the, the, the legislature has to fund the quick action closing fund. Um, and as the governor asked the legislature to do things that they don't really want to do, um, like move public health labs and privatize Medicaid and other things, um, does 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 that create any leverage? Does the does the legislature say like if you keep pushing us on these things, we're going to hold hostage some of your other priorities? I don't know if they will, but they certainly can. They can do whatever they want to. So. You know, uh, for me, the state of the state, it was mostly a lot of not really saying anything. And then the parts that did say something, I was kind of like, you know, come on, like, let's get serious. But, you know, I think you're right, Bailey. Say, you know, having, 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 the, having, having the different branches work together and, and accomplish more, you know, hopefully that's, hopefully that's good. One thing I did fail to mention when we were talking about education, this is going to be the season for the school choice advocates, right? Um, there were several mentions on the dollar needs to go where the kids go, and the governor mentioned the presence of uh, ghost students because the way the formula is structured it's based on a three-year rolling average because students are constantly coming in and out of districts. And so they don't use, you know, real time because 
somebody could move or things could happen or whatever. And so, um, but the, the, the formula is pretty standard. So it's not anything where schools are intentionally trying to game the system and saying, look how many kids we have. And then just kidding, um, because there's, they already don't have enough money as it is, right? And so um, I on the OICA chat, uh, one of the former lawmakers brought up a great point that it sounds good theoretically to say, you know, a kid's education shouldn't be determined by their zip code and that dollars should follow students. But when you get to the nitty gritty and start talking about school funding, and how school schools are funded by property tax dollars are people in broken arrow willing to pay for kids from Tulsa to go to their school right or are people in Oklahoma City willing to pay for uh their tax dollars going towards schools in Bethany right or whatever the case is um but it's not as simple as, yeah, we'll just upend the funding formula and then just let kids go wherever they want. It's it's not that easy and simple. And so I think that's one thing that um, I know we're supposed to be talking about the pauses, but that's one thing that was missing from this conversation is is concrete budget proposals, because that's something that we got from the previous governor that this is how I want to see, you know state government funded, these are the priorities that I want to see. And it looks like one of the priorities is going to be figuring out how fewer dollars can be in the traditional public school system. That's a very good point, Bailey. And like, I have the speech pulled up on my screen. And so I'm, I'm reading the sentences that we talked about a minute ago, where he says, we'll fight for our farmers and ranchers and the Oklahoma way of life. We'll enact business friendly policies. We'll fight for the rights of the unborn children and stand up for personal. So all these things that are like, platform things, but not policy things, right? And so I think uh, that's, a, that's a point well taken. I do want to lift a positive action from the legislature this week. They are moving very fast to get uh, the temporary uh, provisions of Open Meetings Act changed and through to the governor's desk. So that way, um, Entities that are like nonprofits and government biz, uh, government um, agencies and organizations and elected leaders, state employees can finally meet virtually and do things in a safe way. Yeah, I mean, so I, I sit on a state board and we haven't been able to meet for, I mean, we met, we were meeting uh, regularly until the Open Meeting Act uh, exceptions expired. And then we haven't been able to meet since then um, um, because it's, not safe. Now, this is a board that is composed largely of people that work in healthcare and child welfare. <laughs> so we're all very sensitive to that, I think. Um, but um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm hopeful that that's going to get done ASAP um, because there is work that needs to be done across the state that's not happening um, because right now, by law, the only way it can happen is in person. And it seems like there's some energy from leadership on wanting to make some of those provisions permanent, particularly uh, Senator or pro tem treat. So um, I think that will be a good thing if they move from just, you know, getting us through the pandemic to actually allowing state entities and government employees and nonprofits and others to be able to utilize the technologies that we have. Yeah. Yeah. This, this has been a, a big thing. So I'll, I'll put on my freedom of information, Oklahoma hat, of course, um, that we've been talking to them about since the early days. I mean, since the pandemic first started um, and working to get the policy to be, you know, not too much, not too little, kind of the Goldilocks zone of, of, of open meeting policy there. Uh, and what we did last year with it, or what they did last year with it, um, was a learning experience for everybody. And so some of the tweaks that they're making now um, are very helpful, right? To like tighten up some of the loopholes that we didn't anticipate, but that people found, right? How they could use virtual meetings as a way to hide from, you know, people, right? Constituents, they could 
say, oh, I'm going to just join virtually because they know it's a contentious vote and then be like, here's a vote meeting over, bloop, and just disconnect and they don't have to look people in the eye when they do this. And so- Or to one point uh, that Eccles brought up that like there uh, may be folks who could say, we're going to have a virtual meeting and then quickly shift to not be virtual or they'll um, not put the meeting login and credentials. So it's like you listed it, but people really couldn't access it. So that's a great point, Andy. Yeah. And so there's a lot of provisions. There's uh, a number of bills, like five or six or seven bills that deal with the Open Meetings Act this year. Um, Some of which, you know, um, Senator Treat and Leader Eccles um, kind of had mirror bills. Um, A lot of them had differed about when they would expire. Uh, and I know from talking with Leader Eccles that that um, a changing or updating the Open Meeting Act is kind of a legacy issue for him, something he'd been talking about doing before he leaves the legislature in a couple of years when he turns out. And uh, and so the advent of the pandemic gave him the chance to maybe tackle those issues sooner rather than later. All right. So as we wind down, we should probably at least briefly mention some of the other events this week um, and what's to come in in the next few weeks. So we mentioned, you know, Rose Day, and it, as usual, like the first few days of session were filled with discussion of abortion and uh, a lot of committee hearings. Right. So not much on substance. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of just early hearings. One thing that was about to happen but didn't fully happen was a report from the legislative office of finance, fiscal transparency, whatever the loft thing is. So that's a legislative committee that looks at spending by the state and they have a report about how the governor handled some of the CARES Act dollars. And I haven't read the whole thing, but at a first glance, it sounds like they are questioning that some of his expenses or things that he bought with CARES Act money might not fall into the strict definition that the federal government put out. Is that correct? Yes. And Stormy Jones has a good quick thread summarizing what exactly was brought up before Loft as violations with the expenditure of the the CARES Act dollar. And so, well, not the expenditure per se, but how they allocated those funds. And so um, he says one of the findings was CARES Ford inconsistently provided substantive and necessary detail to policymakers about funding proposals or funding decisions, did not track or maintain methodology or explanation for rejected funding proposals, Another finding they had was a portion of the pandemic relief funds were used to fulfill longstanding agency needs. He gave an example of uh, approximately 148 million um, being used uh, through the OMES to advance uh, funded IT projects. Um, He said that several of them may be at risk for not meeting the federal standards of necessary expenses um, responding to the pandemic. And then there's several others that um, it's a good thread if you follow him on Twitter. But Yeah, I'll be interested to see because they're going to have that meeting hopefully next week. They didn't really say a date that it's postponed to. So I'm interested to tune into that. But it, like a, a, a lot of things will be, I'm just curious to see how they talk about it because as an example, the the OESC, right? Like they desperately i mean they did need a new accounting system but they didn't have the money for it and it was just on the shelf as like one of those things we'd like to fund or that we need someday but then this pandemic hit and it went from like a need to a crisis need right and so they had to do something because it was just devastating to families and i think that's the kind of thing right that care in my mind that cares act money is for it's for helping an agency meet the need right now now if that need was already there Okay, but like it, the fact that it happened to occur now and was hastened by the pandemic is just coincidence, right? Um, it's now there are other things like um, like the pandemic center. Like, did we really need that? Is that it's not responding to the pandemic that's occurring right now? I know it's about preparing for one in the future, but also it's a lot of capital expenses 
that might not be necessary. And so I can see where that one might be viewed by the feds of like, what do you can't? Okay. Well, and I think that's where the, where the previous administration and Congress um, had a, a failure in not clarifying what specifically counts as pandemic relief. Cause I'm pretty sure Oklahoma is not going to be the only place in this period of determining what exactly is COVID, what isn't COVID because Andy, you brought two great examples of things that truly are COVID related, even though it may not be coded as such by the federal government, but really did contribute to helping alleviate the challenges Oklahomans are facing during this time. And then there are things that by name only <laughs> are COVID response, but may be justified in the way that, you know, the requirements were written for states to receive this funding. And so um, I do hope that uh, this new Congress and the administration can help clean that up because I think it would be um, devastating to have to send, you know, $200 million or whatever back to the federal government that we really could be using on critical needs. Yeah. Well, and also if we have to send back money that we already spent. Like that's a bad, bad recipe there for uh, our state budget. That's $200 million. We could be using to privatize Medicaid y'all. Like, so that's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do you, you know, I feel like we're starting to laugh again on the podcast, which I miss. <laughs> we used to, it used to be a hoot every week. I don't know what you're laughing at. That wasn't funny. That wasn't a joke. Well, <laughs> just, we all laugh and cry into our beers. The only other thing I was going to say is there, there, was, uh, there was a little bit of fireworks this week. Um, uh, Senate floor leader, uh, Senator Kim David, had some uh, impolite words that she said in a press conference, uh, impugning the competence uh, of a couple of her fellow legislators. That was not well taken, and she was censured this week, which is weird and not actually something that's in the Senate rules, but it happened anyway. Um, and censored for just one. Yeah, just for a week. Yeah, so she was removed from her privileges of floor leader for a week and censored for a week. So a uh, very, very severe punishment that she faced. But um, it's like when my parents would ground me for a week for eating too many candy bars or I don't know, whatever I would get grounded for a week for. Um, um, but, it's, but I think that gives us a taste that when it comes to the issue of Medicaid expansion and med and Medicaid managed care, it's going to be very tense, even among people of the same party this session. That's where the big tension is going to be um, within the climate of um, the Republican controlled legislature. hundred percent. And uh, the, the only thing I was going to say for, before we get out of here, I think Andy, you're about to start us on a wrap up. I was going to take a point of personal privilege and say uh, y'all, the great Christopher Plummer has died today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, you should. Christopher Plummer uh, played Captain Von Trapp in uh, the movie The Sound of Music is the role for which he is most famous. Uh, but he had a long, uh, a long and glorious career on both stage and film. And uh, um, I enjoy him in The Sound of Music, but I enjoy him in other things he's done as well. Um, I think he's really funny and a talented guy. So... Uh, R.I.P. Christopher Plummer, who died today at his home at the age of 91. We should all be so lucky. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for being here. Bailey, thanks for being here as well. Uh, listeners, thank you for being here as well. Next week, uh, we'll be joined by a special guest, Ellie Page, who is a senior legal advisor for the International Center for Nonprofit Law. Uh, and we're going to talk about a number of bills that have been proposed this session dealing with uh, anti-protest bills, basically. Uh, so certainly these are some of those bills that were likely filed in response to, you know, well, the events of the last year, right? So everything from race-related um, protests back in the spring to the insurrection at the Capitol in January. And I would wager that these have a role in Oklahoma that extends beyond that, that also pertain to things like teacher walkouts. And really, anytime people gather at the Capitol, and if you read some of these bills, it's legitimately concerning. And so uh, we're going to have someone not from Oklahoma, a nationwide expert on this, 
join us to talk about these bills and why they are concerned about them here, uh, as well as similar bills in other states. So tune in next week for that. Uh, And until then, remember that decisions are made by those who show up. And have a great week.